the words of that powerful hymn, I'm just struck by the line, come to earth to taste our sadness. Let us remember that whatever it is we have gone through, are going through, will go through in our lives, there is nothing that you haven't, in a sense, Lord Jesus, taken your own medicine. You've tasted our sadness. You've been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. You are a man acquainted with griefs and acquainted with sorrows, all so that we could learn to trust you. And so I pray, Father, that you would, as we open your word this morning, that you would teach us, and I pray that this would not simply be information for us, but that it would truly move the affections of our heart to love you more. We don't love you as you deserve. You came to earth born as a king and born to reign in us. So I pray, Father, that by your word and spirit, you would develop and grow greater and greater love in us because you have first loved us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, hear the word of the Lord upon which our teaching is based this morning as we are concluding our study of what I'll just simply call the Joseph story, which is from Genesis chapter 50, verses 12 to 21. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A writer once wrote, if you cannot free people from their wrongs, you enslave yourself to your own painful past. And by fastening yourself to the past, you let your hate become your future. You can reverse your future only by releasing other people from their pasts. Listen to that. Think about that. If you cannot free people from their wrongs, isn't that what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is not forgive and forget. And we'll look at the nature of forgiveness in just a minute. But forgiveness, why do you think the Lord tells us forgive as the Lord forgave us? He did that because it is as much about us as it is the other person. It is to free us from the bondage and the chains. And may I, may I even call it the poison pill that we, that we take when we hold on 
to resentment and hate and bitterness and the wrong that's been done to us. In this text, as we close out not only the Joseph story, but the book of Genesis itself, we see Joseph forgiving his others. We don't see him excusing his brothers. We don't see him exonerating. He's very honest. He says, you meant it for evil. You did this. This is how you meant it. But he has a different perspective. I want you to think about a question as we kind of, I always like to give you an application question early. Again, as I prayed, I don't want this to be mere information. I want this to form our hearts in the likeness of Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about this, applying the text to your life this morning. And that is, why is forgiveness so hard? Why is bitterness and resentful our default mode? It's like, boot up my heart, where is it going? Mm, Hate. If I reboot, it goes to bitterness. Why is forgiveness so difficult? The same writer again puts it very well when he says, resentment is bittersweet. If we did not cherish it, we would let it go. There's an application right there. Do you recognize you cherish resentment in your heart? He said, why do we cherish it? What sort of rewards? In other words, how does it serve ourselves? What rewards do we get from our resentment? Why do we keep score? Well, he said the first reward is that it makes us feel superior to the person we resent. Also, it gives us an excuse for indulging in exquisite plots for revenge, such as hurting the person by withholding our ultimate treasure, which he calls personal friendship. He says, third, we chew the cud of the past wrongs to enjoy the feeling of hurt that the memory kindles. He says, there is a sense in which we remember past wounds to hurt ourselves. Why? Because then we can feel noble and worthy as the decent person who was wrongly hurt and victimized. He says, then resentments serve a double purpose. They give us treasured pain, and they give us a chance to justify ourselves. So we get two rewards, a neurotic pleasure and a religious pain. You recognize Joseph could have done all this, right? Look at his life. Sold into slavery by his brothers. But that wasn't all. Came to a man by the name of Potiphar, the captain of the guards, serving him, rose up in power in his life, did everything, only to have Potiphar's wife falsely accuse him, abuse him, and he ended up thrown in prison. To which happens, what happens next? He meets a couple of high Egyptian officials, and he's got this kind of skill, does he not? He's able to interpret dreams, and he interprets correctly the dreams of these two high officials. And of course, what does Joseph say? He says, I just have one request. When you go speak to your master, the Pharaoh, would you please remember me? Of course, what does that mean? No good deed goes unpunished, right? And that, as the saying goes, so of course, he's forgotten, he's left in prison. To only be, as Pharaoh then has dreams, and He's then told to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He rises up to a high position in Egypt when one of his dreams was that of a great famine, a shortage of food that was going to happen to the entire realm, the entire area. So think about Joseph. He had a hard life. He suffered unjustly. He could have gotten even with his brothers. He could have used his power. He was, after all, the prime minister of Egypt. 
to make life very hard for the brothers, but he didn't. He forgave. He was willing to reconcile. He was willing to work on, and it takes work. There's a difference, as we will see, between just forgiveness and repairing the relationship. Those are two different things. But he was willing to repair the relationship. Let's ask ourselves the question, how did he do this? He trusted the purposes of God. He entrusted himself, even though he didn't understand God completely, he trusted the purposes of God. What is forgiveness anyway? Very important that we have a correct definition in our minds of forgiveness, because I think a lot of times we have a feeling that forgiveness is kind of this sense of denial, this forgive and forget. Somebody sins against you, somebody does something, and we just kind of go, I forgive you, and now it's all else better. Let's eat ice cream together, and we think it's all going to be better or something. And then we're like, why is it not better? Christian friends, let me tell you, it's not better because that is not the difference, the definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness and relationship, trust, repairing the relationship, are two different things. Forgiveness is necessary for there to be building trust, but forgiveness is a commitment, whereas trust is a process. Forgiveness is a commitment to take an action on our part where trust involves really both parties and both people. Dan Hamilton wrote years and years ago a little pamphlet for InterVarsity Press on the nature of forgiveness, and here's how he defined forgiveness. It's very important. He says, when someone has wronged you, it means they owe you. They have a debt with you. Forgiveness means, here's the commitment, it is a commitment to absorb the cost of the debt yourself. You pay the price yourself, and you refuse to exact the price out of the person in any way. Forgiveness is to free the person from the penalty, the debt for a sin, by paying the price yourself. The scriptures tell us that our forgiveness must imitate God's forgiveness in Christ. Forgive as in Christ God forgave you. So he says, ask the question, how did God forgive? We are told that he does not remember our sins. Which he says does not mean that God literally forgets what has happened. It means that he sends away the penalty for them. He does not bring the incidents to mind and does not let them affect the way he deals with us. So how did God forgive in Christ? We're told that Jesus pays the price for your sins. He gives the illustration. He says, if a careless friend breaks a lamp at your home, I will forgive him. That means I don't make him pay the price, the cost of the lamp. I don't make him buy a new lamp. I've set him free from the debt of that broken lamp. I say I release you from your debt. But when the offender has walked away, you're still holding a broken lamp, aren't you? The lamp is still broken in your home. Who will pay for it? I must pay for it myself. He says a lamp is easy to price and to pay for, but what about damage that is intangible, unpriceable, broken relationships, ruined reputations, missed opportunities? These are the payments that can be made. How does Joseph forgive his brothers? He releases them from the debt by paying the debt himself. And how does he do that practically? 
from this text? We're going to see it in two ways. And these are kind of two disciplines. Remember, we learned the wisdom literature, trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does that mean? Does that mean we just kind of try to get our emotions in line to do that? No, there are some practical disciplines. The scriptures tell us we're transformed. It's a journey. Be patient with yourself by the renewing of your mind. So these are disciplines you have to renew your mind in, engage in. This is why we worship week by week. This is why I hope you engage with the Lord day by day, immersing yourself in the scriptures. Because the process... Of forgiveness means you have to, number one, and we see Joseph doing this, own your humanity. You didn't know I was going to say that. We actually have to be very human. And then we have to recognize the character of God. Okay, sorry for the lengthy introduction. But I haven't preached in two weeks. I'm kind of excited. I wanted to kind of build up to this. Now let's look at the text. Look with me at verse 12. When the text begins, thus his sons did for him, as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place there. After he'd buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Okay? Background to the story, because here's the context. What we have here in the study of this, the close of the book of, of Genesis, is the death and burial of Joseph and the brother's father, Jacob. And one of the very important things to recognize in terms of the book of Genesis is that the story of Jacob's life basically spans almost half of the book of Genesis, so it's quite significant. And the burial of Jacob in Canaan, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, is very significant. Here's why it's significant. Back in Genesis 23, we have recounted for us the story of Abraham purchasing that very field at the time of his wife, Sarah, at her death. The significance of this purchase is that it is the first bit of real estate possessed by God's people in the land that God promises them that is to become the promised land. So in a sense, it is kind of down payment on the promise. And as such, it has great significance for the family of God, the covenant people, the children of Abraham. So one of the things that we learn here, I think pretty practically, and maybe something we overlook in the part of owning your humanity, is how important it is to own your heritage. Now this may sound really, maybe a little off-putting, a little strange to our Western very, very individualistic ears. We are a part of a culture, and culture is basically like the air you breathe. You can't avoid it. We are a part of a culture born of the Enlightenment in Western civilization that is, it is all about the individual. Now, is there personal application in the scripture? Is it about the individual? Absolutely. Here was the key word. I choose my words fairly carefully when I prepare a sermon. The key word there was the word all. We've got to re- recognize that part of owning your humanity and the way the scriptures were written, they are written to a people. They are written to the covenant people. They are written to the inheritors of the covenant people, which is the church. It's a collective. We, as part of our, her- as part of our humanity, have to own our heritage, recognize we don't live in a vacuum. We are connected. We are a collective. We are interdependent upon one another. 
And something else very important. Our family, our heritage is not just our nuclear family. It's our covenant family. New Testament scripture that I think we can so often overlook, and maybe we shouldn't, is found in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus is being questioned about his mother and brothers seeking him out. And sometimes I wish I could be as quick on my feet as Jesus is, because it amazes me. I read the Gospels and I'm going, oh my goodness, do, do we hear what he's saying? Because he's truly changing the world. Talk about a countercultural witness. He says, he looks upon the crowd and he says, who are my brother and my mother and my sisters? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and my mother. You know what he's doing there? He's saying, here's my true family, the church. You recognize you're more of family with the person who may be sitting next to you right now than you may be with your actual some of your nuclear family, especially if they're not believers. Part of owning your humanity is owning your heritage. But that's not easy. Have you looked at us? We're kind of a messy bunch, aren't we? Maybe that's why we want to just go the individual way. We have some control, at least some discipline. You look at us and kind of go, hmm, this is a messy bunch. And this is where we see as we go through the text, it's not easy. Because after the mourning period is over, the brothers and Joseph return to Egypt. And even though there's been some reconciliation in the family, there's more to go. It doesn't mean all the relationships have been healed. There's still fissures. There's still trust to be restored. There's still relationship to be repaired. So the narrative continues, verse 15. Okay, we've built the context. They've buried their father. Now they're returning to Egypt. And Joseph's brothers, I love the way the narrative, when they saw that their father was dead, they said, hmm, we're in a vulnerable position. It may be that Joseph's going to hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sins because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And now we see part of Joseph's forgiveness, this commitment to release them because what does Joseph do? He weeps. He wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Look at this. The brothers fear that with their father gone, Joseph's got free reign. He's a powerful man. He's going to get even. He's going to enact vengeance. They're helpless. They're vulnerable before him. So they decide to beg for mercy before he acts. They send a message to Joseph, probably through an intermediary. Jacob, they said Jacob had told them to tell him to show mercy to them. Now, this is one of those times where I kind of implore you and instruct you, read narrative slowly, because something should hit us there. should be, wait, really? Do I recall in the text, in the narrative, read of Jacob doing that? No, that was never there. If he did, he probably would have gone to Joseph directly. So what's going on here? We have an act of desperation from the brothers. It was born of fear. Part of owning your humanity, is to own your brokenness. Own how much fear and suspicion still drives us in our relationships. Yes, there's growth here. 
the brothers are acknowledging their sin, but do you see what's going on? They're suspicious of Joseph. Look at, you know, what do they assume about him? He will get even with them. They take responsibility. They take responsibility for their brokenness. They look at that. One of the practical applications that I want to give you, part of owning our humanity, owning our brokenness, is we have to recognize and learn to be patient with one another as growth and maturity is a journey. It's not just a snap your fingers and done process. We certainly see this in Joseph as he receives this message. What does he do? He breaks down and weeps. No sense of anger. No sense of, I'll get even, only tenderness and compassion. In a healthy culture, whether that culture be your family, a church, any organization, there will be lots of empathy and tenderness and ability to put yourself in other shoes. The brothers come and fall down before Joseph. They acknowledge now their subordinate status. They acknowledge the fulfillment of Jacob's earlier dreams back in chapter 37, which showed his dominant position among his brothers. But now we're at the point of tension. We're at the point of crisis. How will Joseph respond? It's one thing to own your humanity, but that's not enough. How will Joseph respond? And now we see that Joseph, after all these years, and again, it's a journey for him. He wasn't like this way back in when the narrative started in chapter 37. What do we see from Joseph's perspective? He has learned to recognize the character of God. He is able to trust the purposes of God because he recognizes God's character. Verse 19, Joseph said to them, do not fear. Don't you love how he reassures them right at the start? Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now this shows us, this next line shows us, there is no denial. He does not exonerate or excuse their sin. He says, as for you, you did mean evil for me. This is where forgiveness is not forgive and forget. But when he says, you meant evil for me, he doesn't make them pay. He's released them from the debt. And how does he do that? He recognizes God's been guiding him all along. He says, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So again, he reassures them. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Notice here also, part of being patient, we've had to be patient with Joseph Growth and maturity for Joseph is a journey because he says something now that he wouldn't have said at the beginning of the narrative. And that is he's saying his power, his status, his position is not to serve himself or his own interests, but to serve the interests of the family and the wider humanity. See, recognize what his family is. His family is no ordinary family. His family is the one that God would use to continue and fulfill the promises that he gave to Abraham way back in chapter 12. And so Joseph is recognizing God's character, his faithfulness to his word, his faithfulness to his covenant promise, his power, his goodness. So he's recognizing that his life, even though he's suffered, even though it's filled with trauma, it's filled with tragedy, he still calls it suffering, he still calls it trauma, he still calls it tragedy, but it's not meaningless. It is not meaningless. He says, yes, his suffering is real. It's been traumatic, but it's not 
meaningless. See, his perspective is that his life, painful though it's been, is not meaningless because it has been personally guided by God. So he assures his brothers, he says, you did evil to me, but my life has been in God's hands. I don't get everything that God has done. You meant it for evil, but God has somehow meant it for good. And then he says, and this is amazing, he leaves it in God's hands when he says, am I in the place of God? Look at Joseph's perspective here. I think we see it clearly when we look at the New Testament and we look, for example, at Paul's words to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, when Paul says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Again, one of the most difficult things, leave it to God. How good are we at doing that? Can we go back to the confession part of worship for a second? Because I know I'm not good at leaving it to God. I like to do it myself. I wish I could find that in the Word. I don't find that anywhere in the Word, do it myself. I find a lot of leave it to God. Tim Keller says, and I think this is just so important, he says, what Paul's doing here in Romans 12 is he's showing us another way to think of resentment and forgiveness. When he says, leave room for the wrath of God, he says, what we are being reminded is that all resentment and vengeance is taking on God's role as judge. In other words, we're playing God. When we don't leave it to God, what we're doing is saying, I can do a better job. You get off your throne, I'll get on it, and I can do a better job. But Dr. Keller goes on to say, he says several things here. He says, one, only God is qualified to be judge. We are imperfect. We deserve judgment ourselves. Two, only God knows enough to be judge. We don't know all about the offender. We don't know what true vengeance and wrath might look like. We don't know what they truly need. We don't have all the information. And then lastly, from a gospel's perspective, Jesus has taken the judgment of God. So here's Paul's reasoning. And remember I said we're transformed by the renewing, by the reasoning of our mind. So when we are struggling with bitterness and resentment. We have to reason it out this way. And here's how Paul reasons it out. He says, you need to think this. Either the persons you're angry and resentment at will repent someday, and Jesus takes their judgment, so it's still paid for. No one gets off scot-free. Or they will not, and God will deal with it. But in either case, either part, you're not involved with the process. He says, pride won't allow forgiveness, and forgiveness won't allow pride. If you cannot forgive, it is because you are sure that you are not as sinful as the person you are mad at. Say, so look at this. Joseph doesn't have all the information that we do, but what does he do? He says, am I in the place of God? What he does know is the character and the redemptive nature and purposes of God. So he's looking at his life and he's able to define his life and define God's goodness not through the prism of his circumstances but through the lens of God's goodness and character. 
And so as one commentator put it, the harm wrought on Joseph by people who wished to hurt him ultimately brought him to a high position in Egypt, a position from which he could provide grain not only for the Egyptians, but also for his own family. And his family was no ordinary family. They were the ones chosen by God to bring a blessing on all the nations of the world. What did Joseph learn? He learned nothing can thwart the purposes of God. Not the wickedness of other people, not our own wickedness, not our circumstances. Nothing can thwart the purposes of God. As we've been saying from the beginning, Romans 8 is a commentary on the Joseph narrative. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. I think Joseph was more than a conqueror. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Joseph didn't have all this information, but how can we know this? Because we know this from the work of Jesus. Peter in his sermon at Pentecost put it this way. He says, men of Israel, I want you to hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this very Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now pause there for just a quick second. God doesn't give pat answers for our suffering and pain, does he? The cross was still the cross. Tragedy was still tragedy. Jesus was still put to death by wicked and lawless men. He still suffered mockery and rejection and torture and agony and pain and suffering and shame. There's no denial in that. The rest of the passage says, but God raised him up. So resurrection has the final word, but it doesn't eliminate the cross. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Trumper Longman says the greatest salvation event of all was accomplished through the agency of wicked men who nailed Jesus to the cross. Sounds like the Joseph story. Through the agency of wicked men, Joseph pretty much went through a death only to be raised, so to speak, foreshadowing to life in order to bring blessing and redemption to others. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, freeing him and us from the agony of death. Let's pray. Father, tragedy is still tragedy, and trauma is still trauma. And as a church, we need to learn to not give pat answers, and may the scriptures never be a pat answer for us. But may we have a perspective that your character is still good and kind and tender and that you are sovereign. And even though there are secret things that we won't understand, you are still trustworthy. And Lord, help us to be patient with one another. We all don't trust at the same level. We all have gone through different lives. 
Help us to be sensitive and tender with one another. Father, teach us. Teach us, maybe we're learning through this, teach us wisdom, skill in living with one another, that we would recognize we're connected to each other and what a countercultural witness this can be to the world if just simply the church would be the church. Maybe, Jesus, this is why you said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So teach us to love one another and love one another well in Jesus' name. Amen.